Good morning, Mount Hope. It is great to be with you today. And today we are starting a brand new sermon series called The Good Place. And we are going to spend the next few weeks together answering this question. What is it that life looks like when we leave this earth? Or in other words, what happens when we die? And I have a question for you as we get started. We're going to hit the ground running this morning. I have a question for you as we get started, and I'd like for you to think with me. Maybe you want to jot a couple notes. Maybe you want to draw a picture. Whatever you want to do, but think through this question with me. In your own mind, answer this question. What is it, what is it that heaven looks like? You got it? My guess is whatever you're thinking right now, uh, you are not 100% confident that you are absolutely definitively correct in what you're picturing. In fact, many of us probably don't even know exactly what to picture. Uh, we're not sure what heaven looks like. I mean, we've heard about it and we've maybe read about it or seen, seen movies about it, but, but we're not sure exactly what to think or how to answer that question. In fact, the worst thing that I could do to you right now is ask you to share your answer out loud because all of us, I bet, feel a little bit insecure about our answers, right? I mean, we know heaven isn't here. It's somewhere up there, we've learned, and, and uh, we kind of are going to be among the clouds, and there'll be other people there that we'll hang out with, I guess, and talk to, and there's, uh, of course, God is there, and, and harps, and some sort of music, and then it just kind of goes on and on like that, right, for all eternity, and because we have these sort of incomplete answers and we're not sure exactly what it is that, that happens when we die, I mean, even those of us who have been a part of the church for a long time, all sorts of other questions begin to, to form around this question of what does heaven look like? And we begin to ask ourselves, well, what does it look like to be in God's presence forever? And, and, and what, what is it going to be like, our interactions with other people and Maybe a big one that many of us think is we hear other people talk about how much they want to go to heaven, and we think to ourselves, man, you know, I'm not really sure that that's going to be better than my life here. We'd never admit that out loud, maybe, but, but we think that, that, that we're not 100% convinced that whatever happens up there is going to be better than what happens down here. In fact, i got to be honest with you, I, every time I fly, I float through the clouds, and I'm forced to talk to other people, and you know, if that's what it is forever and ever, I mean, that doesn't feel like heaven at all to me. That kind of, you know, it feels like the opposite one. So, so how, what does it actually look like? Well, let me ask you this question. Where, as you think about that answer to that first question, where is it that you're getting your information? Where are you getting your information from about what heaven looks like and what life looks like after this world? I think the truth is, for many of us, even those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus and have been in church for a while, we're getting our answers from movies, books, TV shows, cartoons, what our grandma said about heaven or other people that we know. And the place that we're not getting our answer from is from God's word itself. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend our time looking into the Bible and saying, okay, there are all these ideas out there about what life after this earth may look like. And all these stories of people who have gone there and come back and have something to say. But what is it that God himself says about life after this 
world. Now we're going to look at that together. I think it's entirely appropriate for a couple of reasons. One, we've just come out of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus together. And we've said last week that Jesus' death and resurrection offers us hope for the future and help for today. Well, if that's true, we ought to understand what that future looks like. And secondly, every time you go on social media, every time you go on the internet, every time you turn on your TV today, you and I are confronted with a statistic that is very inconvenient and one that we're not quite sure what to do with. And that is the number of people who every single day are dying in our towns and in our cities and in our states and in our country and in this world from the current pandemic that we are in. So this topic of death and what happens next is something that is on everybody's mind. No matter how much we don't want to think about it, we can't help but think about it in today's world. So it's entirely appropriate that we pause and ask ourselves, what is it that God actually says? I'm sure that you would love for me to preach the definitive sermon that answers all of your questions. i got to be honest, I'd love to preach that sermon too but I'm not sure that I'm capable of it. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we are going to take one question at a time and we're going to try to understand what God tells us, what his word tells us about that particular question. And this morning, for the next few moments, we're going to talk about this question. What happens immediately after we die? What does God say happens immediately after we die? And to answer that question, I know of no better verse to go to than Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, where the writer very succinctly tells us exactly what happens after life on this earth ends. And this is what he says, Hebrews chapter, chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed, the author writes, for man to die once. And after that, and after that, Immediately after man or, or woman dies once, after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that, God's word says, comes judgment. You know, it strikes me that anytime someone passes away, I mean, anytime someone dies, their life is immediately judged, isn't it? Our world looks at, at live, the lives of people who have lived and, and we try and pass some sort of judgment on, on that life, whether that was a, a good life or whether that life was bad, the ups and downs of that life. Many times as we gather together at wakes and funerals, that's what we do is we talk about the life that person lived and we talk about whether it was a good life or whether it was a hard life, the joys, the struggles. Anytime somebody dies, some sort of, of judgment or evaluation of that life takes place. And by and large, the world that we live in evaluates a life or judges a life based on what was accomplished in the time that person had on this earth. In fact, that idea, it really has infiltrated much of our society. Our society understands that you only live once and you only die once. And so our world will tell us 
if when it's time for you to die, you want the evaluation of your life to be, you want the judgment of your life to be that it was a great life, then what you should do is you should try to squeeze everything you can out of this world, every last bit of experience, every last bit of enjoyment, everything you could possibly do, you ought to try to experience before you leave this world so that when it's time to go, people will look at your life and they will say, that was a life worth living. That's why we create bucket lists, is so we can try and make sure we get to do everything we want to do so that when life is over and we look back on this life, we'll say, people will say, that life was a great life. It's, it's why our culture talks about the fact that you only live once or that you only have one life to live. It's why Tim McGraw wrote a song called Live Like You're Dying, and he evaluates his life by saying that if he's going to squeeze everything that, that he can out of this life, then he's going to go skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and ride 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I don't know if you hear that and you say to yourself, man, that is a life worth living, or if you hear that and you say to yourself, that doesn't sound worth living at all. But wherever you find on that, that's the, the mentality of our culture, that when life is over here, if you want people to judge your life and evaluate your life and say, that was a good life, then here's what you should do. You should try to squeeze every last bit of entertainment and enjoyment and experience out of the time that you have. That's what it looks like to live a life that passes judgment. And now here's the question for us this morning. Is that the same way that the Bible says our lives are going to be judged? That's the way our world judges life. What does the Bible mean when the Bible says that every person is going to die once and then is going to experience judgment? Well, I think to answer that question, we need to understand two things. We need to understand from the Bible who is the person who is going to be doing the judging and then what it is that they're going to be judging us on. It's just like when you had a teacher in high school and you wanted to understand how you were going to perform on any test that they were going to give, you asked yourself two questions. Who is this teacher that's going to be grading me? And what is it they're going to grade me on, right? And you'd go to your friends that had had that teacher in the past, and you would say, listen, tell me about this teacher. Tell me about this professor. Are they an easy grader or are they a hard grader? Do you have to show your work or can you just write the answer? Because you wanted to know who was going to be doing the judging. And secondly, you would ask this question, what is going to be on the test? And in fact, sometimes in our classes in high school and college, people would raise their hand and they would say, teacher, professor, is this going to be on the test? Because we want to know if we're going to be evaluated or judged, what criteria we are going to be judged by. And so what is it the Bible says? How does the Bible say we're going to be judged? Well, to answer that, we got to figure out who is going to do the judging and what they're going to judge us on. And to answer the question of who is going to do the judging, we can turn right to John chapter 5 and find that answer out very quickly. In John chapter 5, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He tells his disciples exactly who is going to be doing the judging. And it's in John chapter 5, verse 22. He says, the Father, that's God, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So very quickly, Jesus answers that question for us and tells us that when we die and face judgment, he is the one 
who is going to be doing the judging. And so then the second question comes up. Well, what are we going to be judged on? And here's where it gets a little challenging, I think, for those of us who have grown up in the church or have been around church for a while, especially the evangelical church, is we are so heavy on talking about God's grace and his mercy towards us through Jesus Christ, which is absolutely true, that we can forget sometimes that whenever the New Testament talks about this moment of judgment, and Jesus does this, and the Apostle Paul does this, and John does this in the book of Revelation, when the New Testament talks about judgment, it talks about the reality that we are going to be judged on our works, on the good things, the righteous things, and the bad things or the unrighteous things that we have done. In fact, one place we could go to see this quickly is in Romans chapter 2, verse 6. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he says it this way. God, he will render to each person according to his works. And that's Paul writing about that moment of judgment. And he says, God is going to render to each person a judgment according to his or her works. And I think for some of us that are in the church, we would say, now wait a second. We've been taught over and over again that we are saved by grace, that it is by faith we are saved through grace. And it's, it's not of ourselves. This is, this is God's gift to us that we would be saved through Jesus Christ. So how is it, how can it be that we are saved by grace if now you're telling me that we're going to be judged according to our works? It's like one of those moments where you've studied for a test and then you go to take that test and your heart sinks when you look at question one because you say to yourself, oh no, I have studied the wrong things. And even though you've studied really hard, you end up doing very poorly on a test because, because you, you've ended up, you've studied the wrong things. Is that what's happening here? That all your life and, and all your time in church, you've been told that you should rely on God's grace and trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. But now, all of a sudden, you're going to get to this moment of judgment. You're going to be judged on your works. Well, over and over in, in Scripture, and if we were to look at the whole, I think this is so important for us to understand for this moment. We are both saved by grace Saved by trust in Jesus Christ. If you put your trust in him and your belief in him and follow him, you will have eternal life with him. That is true. But we are also judged by works. And if you were to look throughout the whole of scripture, you would see over and over again that the Bible upholds, especially the New Testament upholds, that both of those are true at the exact same time. That you are both saved by grace and will be judged according to your works. Now, how is it that those two things could be true at the exact same time? Well, quite simply, what you do with your life, how you live, is proves what you actually believe. So, yes, you are saved through your belief in Jesus Christ, but how you live, the things that you do day to day, are showing every single moment how you believe, what you believe. And the question that you and I have to ask ourselves over and over again, and the Bible often refers to this as fruit, right? Does the fruit of our life, does our work day to day, does that line up with what we say we believe? 
Because it's if we say that we're saved by grace, but our works say something else, then we might come to this moment of judgment. And because our works say something different than what we say we believe, we might actually think we're about to test to pass a test that we are getting ready to fail. Because our belief was never really a true belief at all. It was something that we said, but true belief is seen through action. For our 10th wedding anniversary, my wife Lori and I, we decided to go uh, on a trip to Italy. And I had never been to Italy before. Lori had never been to Italy before. But we believe it existed. And so for months, our actions were impacted on this belief that Italy was real and we were going to go there. We had heard from other people that it was real. We had seen on TV that it was real. We had uh, read books about it that said that it was real. And so we reorganized our entire life around this idea that Italy was real and that we could go there one day. And it changed the way that we thought about our money as we prepared for that trip. It changed the way we thought about our time and how we used our time. It changed the way the things that we read and the things that we studied. And many of our actions were shaped around the idea that that Italy was a real place we could go to. And that shaped the way that we acted. And the same is true in our belief with Jesus Christ, right? If we believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and is the Son of God, and that one day we are going to go and be with him, if that's truly our belief, then in some way it's going to shape our actions and what we do on a day-to-day basis. And that's how it can be true that in this moment of judgment, you and I are going to be judged, not just on our what we say is our belief, but on what we do and whether or not the two line you know, we think about that, and I think for many of us that makes us uncomfortable. In fact, that becomes a moment that we don't look forward to. But I want to encourage you this morning that in Scripture, this is a moment that, that the writers of Scripture, they long for. They long for this moment of judgment. This is not like going to the principal's office. This is a beautiful moment for two reasons. The first reason is, This is the moment where God sets everything the way it's supposed to be. We live in a very unjust world. It is not fair. And in this moment, no matter what happened to you in this earth, no matter how unfair life has been to you, no matter how unjust things have been that you have experienced, if your belief is in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done, if you have put your trust in him, and and if that is a trust that is so strong that we can even see it in the way that you, you act out your life, if you have that sort of true, real faith, then this is a moment, this moment of judgment where God sets everything the way it is supposed to be. And so over and over in Scripture, from David to the writers of the New Testament, this is a moment that is longed for, where God brings justice into a very unjust world. And secondly, this is a moment that you and I should long for because of who the judge is. You are not going to meet some vindictive, vicious judge. You are going to meet Jesus himself the one who humbled himself and became like a servant and came down to this earth and who took the 
your sin and my sin upon himself to the cross and shed his blood that you and I might be saved. You are not going to come and meet a judge who is against you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to come and meet a judge who is for you and who is gracious and who is merciful and who is loving. And he is going to look And he is going to judge your life, not as the world judges, not based on on this idea that we should be able to squeeze out every last bit of what we think will make us happy into the time that we have. He is going to judge you on, did you put your trust and your belief in him? And was that belief one that was so true, so honest, that it impacted the way you lived your life? Belief is first, trust is first, and our actions should follow. Our world has a way of judging a life. When life ends on this earth, we we judge it and we say, was it a good life? Was it a, a bad life? Was it a hard life? Was it an easy life? Did that person really get to experience everything they should have experienced? And we decide whether it was a, a valuable life or a, or a less valuable existence based on, based on those criteria. But heaven is different. Heaven judges with a whole different scale. I mean, if you get before Jesus Christ and he says, listen, tell me, what did you do? I mean, think about how foolish our answers sound in that moment. Well, it was a good life. I went skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing, and I don't know if you saw, but 2.7 seconds, I don't think that's too bad on a bull named Fu Manchu, right? I mean, our ideas, I mean, think about what is prized in this life and how insignificant that would seem in that moment of, of judgment in front of Jesus Christ. I mean, let's say you're Steve Jobs and you invented the iPhone and then you stand in front of Jesus Christ. I mean, how foolish would it be to say, well, I, I lived the best life there was. I started Apple in my garage and I invented the iPhone. So did you believe? And did your actions bear that belief out? It gives great hope to those of us in this world that our life's value, judgment, is not based on whether or not we we are able to do everything that our world would say is success. But I'm putting our faith and trust in the one true judge who is kind and merciful and gracious and delivers true justice and whether or not our life bears out that belief. On Good Friday morning, a young man named Craig Smallwood, he was 36 years old, left this earth far too soon. He was a researcher at Children's Hospital and by all accounts, a great person. He left behind a wife, Erica, and two young children. And over the last week, I have been learning about Craig's connections with someone in the Mount Hope community. 
a number of people knew Craig, and, and two gentlemen that attend our church, Dan Rakich and Thomas Vanderlaan, they rode with Craig at Northeastern University, and they were together and great friends. And Thomas, he wrote a wonderful tribute to Craig on, online. And I asked Thomas if I could share a bit of it with you as we think about what really happens when you leave this earth and how we judge and value a life. Listen to what Thomas wrote about his friend Craig. He said, Craig, Dan, and I all committed to follow Christ while in college and were part of both campus ministry and church together. We were often called God Squad by the other folks on our rowing team. It was a bit of mockery, but also there was some respect in it. In his pre-God Squad days, Craig was a fun guy to be around, as well as an impressive athlete. Listen to what he says here. After Craig committed his life to God, he was still fun to be around and an impressive athlete, but he became more filled with wisdom, more self-giving, more patient, more interested in the success of others. He became a true servant and a true leader to others. I am deeply grateful to have had Craig as a dear brother in Christ and an amazing friend. Our world might look at a life like Craig's and say, what a tragedy. They might judge and they may say, how tragic is it that he missed out on so much that's in this life? He had so much left to experience so much left to see, so much left to do, so much potential that is left unfulfilled. And certainly, it is right to grieve for his wife and for his children, the reality and the harsh reality of death. Now, the truth is, God didn't create us for death. He created us for life in the garden. And when we disobeyed God, we brought in death. And so, Death, it just creates pain and sorrow, and all of that is okay. But when we evaluate a life, when we judge a life, as followers of Jesus, it looks very different. Because we look at Craig's life, and you can see even there in Thomas's tribute, the belief that he had in Jesus Christ, and how that belief radically changed the way that he lived And so we know that even though he has gone from this earth, he has not missed out on something that that would have been much better for him. He has gone into what is absolutely best for him as Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord, met him face to face and welcomed him into his presence. The life that Craig began when he began to follow Jesus has now found its ultimate fulfillment. So even as we grieve, we grieve with great hope and encouragement. You only have one life to live. That is true. You only have one life to live. So live your life, Mount Hope. Live your life for the one. If I could just encourage you with one thing this morning, it would be this. You only have one life to live, so live your life for the one. The one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who has saved you. Because in the end, 
even if you miss out on doing some rock climbing or some skydiving or whatever it is in this world that's on your bucket list, even if you miss out on those things, you will find true life through Jesus Christ.